you listened to the music this morning. I hope you did. And I always try to listen through your ears to the preaching, to the, to, to the texts of Scripture that we read, to the sermon, to the music. I try to listen through your ears, and I try to think your thoughts. And I try hard, and so I try to know you so I can think your hearts. And here's what I think this morning. I think that, oh, by the way, thank you for paying me. I'm very aware that your money is what allows me to be up there doing that work. Thank you. You. Okay, thank you. you should, somebody should say you're welcome. Thank you. All right. And so the first song we sang this morning was this one. Rise up, O Lord. And I wonder whether you ever think, what is the biblical basis for what we're singing? Do you, do you even hear what you're singing? Now, I know you hear what you're singing because I know that, that there are a number of you that resent singing songs like that. There's, after all, a reason why all the mainline denominations have taken all the military songs out of the hymnals. And it's because we hate them, and they know what we like and dislike, so they pull them out of, the, out of the hymnals. You all know that, right? And even those denominations that still have those in the hymnals do one of two things. They either never sing them, and that would be true of the PCA. They'd have them in. they make a big principle about having them in, but they'd rarely sing them. Or it's fundamentalist Baptist churches that have a flag up on the stage, and they would sing them thinking of the righteousness, the exceptionalism of the United States of America. Do you understand this? And neither of those things is right. And the reason we don't like that song, and the reason we don't like the scripture that was read to us this morning, which I, I couldn't help but think it was deeply ironic when we got to the end, and everybody th said, thanks be to the Lord, thanks be to God. And I thought, liar, liar, pants on fire, noses as long as a telephone wire. If you read what that text said, come on, not one of you was in agreement with that text. Not one of you. Huh? Well, I mean, that's the least of the problems with that text. You're right. We don't believe that, we believe God listens to everybody's prayers. Yeah, you're absolutely right about that, Ben. But what's the problem with that text? Well, the problem with that text is it presents God as angry. Now, how many of you really think that God is ever angry? Now, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> but honestly, how many of us really think that God is angry? Now, you think, okay, that, you know, we've hit the speed bump and that's as bad as it'll get this morning. Tim's going to be talking about God's anger. No, 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 no. That text got even worse. We can handle the anger of God, maybe, but you know what is the most obnoxious thing about that text? Come on. God doesn't listen to the prayers of the wicked, number one. Number two, God's angry. But come on, keep going. What other things? You don't... Huh? Yeah, God is angry because of his righteousness, his purity, his holiness. Yeah, but that's not really... A, 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But now, now hold on. You're, you, you, you're just a little bit short, a pound short and, a, and an inch light. You're almost there. Come on, what is it? You heard what he said. What he said is that the speaker of the prayer says, speaks about his righteousness. And man, that begins to get really obnoxious, right? And at that point, because we're all good Christians, what do we do? We all go off into what? We go off into redemptive historical preaching. And it becomes a psalm about Jesus, and and we begin to tick off the boxes about how that psalm is a messianic prophecy of Christ on the cross, and we hear them hurling their abuse at Jesus, saying he saved others, he can't save himself, right? How many of you heard that as you heard that being read? I mean, it's clearly about Jesus, all right, but that's not what's obnoxious. What is obnoxious? Come on. If you don't know what's obnoxious in a scripture text, you haven't read it. Because we are evil, and every time we read the Bible, it is God speaking to us. And so if we can't hear the thing that we don't like, we're not reading it. Because we don't normally like scripture. It's only when we hear it and repent and look by faith that scripture becomes sweeter than honey. The thing that's really obnoxious about 2 Samuel 22 is that 2 Samuel 22 not only says the psalmist, David, that he's righteous, but it says that God's wrath is unleashed as a vindication of David. If any of us have faith for God's wrath, what we have faith for is that God's wrath vindicates himself. (laughs) You know? But what we can't handle is that God vindicates his righteous ones in the eyes of the world by crushing and turning to dust the wicked. And so then when we come to a hymn, Rise Up, O Lord, and we see this is us crying out to God in worship that he will rise up and judge the wicked. And I'm just wondering, are you hearing Anybody out there hearing this? Or is it just, you know, there goes Jody again? (laughs) Or Jody and all those men that have inferiority complexes, and so they get up in front of people and they begin to pump their chests. Now, I know you don't think any of those thoughts, and it's good to have a pastor who does so that you can say, we have a twisted pastor. But listen, you guys, I guarantee you, you do not believe that God is a God of wrath. And from Genesis 1 to Revelation, it reveals the wrath of God, past and present and future. It is unrelenting, relentless in presenting to us the wrath of God against ungodliness and the precise point of Scripture that is most clearly 
the place that even evangelicals love, namely the cross of Jesus Christ, is the most incredible manifestation of the wrath of God against ungodliness, that it would drive his son to the cross. And so what we have today in America is we have this effort to get along to go along, and that means that we have to blur over all distinctions between the righteous and the wicked, and we all have to say, well, ain't no one but us chickens in here, Maxa. <laughs> you know, not me, look at Jesus, you know. And then you come to 2 Samuel 22, and it's about war. He trains my fingers for war. I have absolutely, and if you look what comes right before it in the narrative, right before it, it's listing all the giants that were killed. And then it's talking about Saul, how David had victory over Saul. So Saul's evil, David's righteous. And then comes that chapter that you read. And then David's last words are what we're going to get to next week. And so what you see is, that David is a type of Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, that's it. You know, a type of Jesus Christ. Forget David. And then I say, no, 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 David committed adultery with Bathsheba and he murdered Bathsheba's husband. And you go, yeah, that's why it's Jesus. <laughs> you know, it's not David. I say, no, 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 it is actually David. And you go, how can that be? And I say, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in chains. And see, if you will put yourself in scripture, scripture, if you will listen to the songs that you sing, what you will find is that the Christian faith and the word of God is never stopping making the division clear. And if you, if you, if you get nothing other from Scripture and from the preaching that you hear week after week, if you get nothing other than postmodern men are liars from the beginning because they're always trying to blur the distinctions. They're always trying to hide the divisions. They're always trying to throw grace out to absolutely everybody. Grace, 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 grace. Every tweet has grace in it. And they know nothing of the division that God, at the very beginning and at the very end and throughout eternity, will manifest through heaven and hell. Through mercy and judgment. And so you've been thinking about it, and you've heard it in the scripture, and you said, thanks be to the Lord, to God, when it was done being read. And you sang, rise up, O God. And it should be a comfort to you, because Psalm 73 says that the believer was almost betraying the people of God and his faith until he came in the sanctuary and then he remembered that their feet are on slippery places. In other words, the very thing that was a comfort to the psalmist in Psalm 73 was the fact that he came into worship and then he saw the judgment of the wicked and that gave him faith to be righteous.
And boy, we hate that, you know, because what we want is we want, uh, what's that word, random acts of kindness to, to erupt from within us. You know, we want, um, we don't want any reciprocity. We don't want any judgment sending us to mercy. We just want to see the merit of Jesus Christ, how beautiful he is, his grace, and we want ourselves to come to Jesus simply because of how beautiful he is. And then it's a disinterested love of the pure, you know? Certainly not a fear of the wrath of God. That's a negative thing. I mean, who wants to be motivated to obey his mother because his father's going to whoop him? You know, it should just be the pure beauty of our mother. You know? Mother. You know? And then there comes father. And Jesus talked about hell more than anybody else in Scripture. And Jesus warned more than anybody else. And, and, you know, and we still think that our faith ought to be a matter of us you know, seeing the beauty of Jesus Christ and just coming to him out of a disinterested sort of academic kind of scholarly kind of uh, sort of uh, love of the good and the true and the beautiful. I say, no, 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 no. He is angry against the ungodly. And you say, well, I know that, but I mean, isn't it much better for me to see his love and mercy that the kindness of God leads me to repentance, says Romans? I say, yes. And what is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? What is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. What is the kindness of your father that leads you to speak respectfully to your mother? (laughs) Yeah, discipline. Now, that's the prep for our text. Here it is. You ready? (laughs) I know you thought that I was off traveling somewhere, but I'm back. (laughs) Okay. Therefore, 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven to 33, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord, talking about the Lord's Supper, in an unworthy manner, shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. Remember, I said the kindness of God leads you to repentance. For this reason, many, not one, not two, many among you. Who? The church, the church of Corinth. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And, you know, you laugh, I laugh. You know, you know me well. I mean, it just seems so ludicrous. (laughs) 
What? The end of it all is wait for one another? Are you insane? You talk about delusions of grandeur. The Apostle Paul is the master of it. Some of you are weak. Some are sick. Some die. And so wait for one another. Can't you imagine it? A potluck. Tim's preached five hours and we haven't had lunch. The babies are crying. The kids are going wacko. The mothers are, have headaches, splitting headaches. All the food is set out. And the ch- tables are set up and everybody's been waiting. And so somebody prays. And then right before you can go get your food, somebody says, this is the reason some of you are weak and others of you are sick and others are asleep. Wait for one another. And we go, what? What? Are you telling me if I cut in between the food and Rachel that I might die? And you say, well, no, no, no. It's just the, the, the Lord's table. That's it. <laughs> I say, oh, just that, huh? You know? Just that. And so our text begins, verse 27, therefore. And so that indicates something came before, right? And so he's applying what has come before when he starts this text with therefore. And so let me read to you. If he's telling us how to avoid getting sick, being weak, and dying, and he begins that warning with the word therefore, then, and then he goes on and he says what? Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner. So what we must be dealing with here is we must be dealing with men and women in the church in Corinth who were eating and drinking in an unworthy manner, right? And that's the reason they didn't judge themselves and that's the reason some of them were weak, others were sick, and others died, right? And it was God that caused them to be weak and to sick and to to die, right? You all with me? I mean, you just can't escape it. it. The text is absolutely clear. And the therefore must point back to the sins they had committed that caused them to not eat and drink in a worthy manner. So what unworthy manner were they eating and drinking that caused them to get sick and to die when they didn't judge themselves properly? Well, if you look above, beginning with verse 17, you'll see it. He starts this section by saying, but in giving this instruction, I do not praise you. So here comes the negative. Here comes the sin. I do not praise you because you come together not for the better, but for the worse, for in the first place. Okay, this must be the first sin. In the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you. All right? And so the unworthiness they brought to the table that caused their death, one of One aspect of that unworthiness was that divisions existed among them. So God must take divisions very seriously. All right. 
For there must also be factions among you so that those who are approved may become evident among you. So divisions, factions, sort of the same thing. Therefore, when you meet together, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry and another is drunk. So in other words, at the center of the division was the fact that some of them were rich, others were poor. And the rich uh, made a big display out of their wealth and hurt the poor by not sharing with them. And so there were some people that had lots to eat and so much to drink that it says another is drunk, verse 21. One is hungry and another is drunk. In other words, the drunk man's rich, so rich that he can be drunk, while the other man has nothing to drink and nothing to eat. So now we know a little bit more about the division. The division in the church was such that everybody there could see who was rich and who was poor, and the poor sat there and couldn't eat while the rich were getting drunk. All right? And then he says, verse 22, what? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? And so here's, follow it. Division, separation over wealth, some nothing to drink, some drunk, some nothing to eat, others full and fat. And what it means is that they despise the church, verse 22, and shame those who have nothing. Okay? And so when he says, therefore, at the beginning of verse 27, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner, now we know what unworthy is. It's division. It's division that makes it clear who's rich and who's poor. It's some people having nothing to drink and nothing to eat and other people being drunk. It's despising the church and it's shaming the people with nothing. Okay? That's what it means to be unworthy and that's why they died. Now, are you all with me? It seems pretty clear that's what the Holy Spirit is saying to us, right? And so what's the application of that? (laughs) Well, you know what the application is. The application is that way back, who knows how long ago, because of how scary the text was, all the Reformed people stopped having communion every day or every week and began to have it every quarter or twice a year. And so in the Presbyterian tradition, generally, a lot of us grew up having it once a month or once every three months. Well, is that what Jesus meant? Well, it sure is a way of not having to examine ourselves, isn't it? You know? And then if, if, if you could just work it out that you miss that one day every three months, well... And so you would go back in the church in the past, you would find two-thirds of the people in the church in Edward's time never took communion, ever. It's another way of not examining yourself, Right? Right? And you say, well, no, it's not a function of the schedule. It's a function of the portions. We've gotten around it because now we have tiny, tiny, tiny little pieces of bread and tiny, tiny little cups of not even wine. But I'm under the elders. So, I mean, who in the world can get drunk on Welch's grape juice? (laughs) 
you know? And so aren't we righteous, you know? We've taken care of that, those stupid Corinthians, you know, getting drunk, you know? Why, if you want to take the whole loaf of bread when you come forward, go ahead and be my guest. If you want to drink the whole goblet, gulp it down. And, you know, I just always see in my own heart how squirrely I am. And I hope nobody here is from PETA and is objecting to me saying squirrely. (laughs) I don't mean any offense to squirrels. (laughs) But it's our habit always to make a show out of giving God what he wants. And just absolutely refusing to give him what he wants. And what does God want? What God wants is for us to come to the Lord's table and show his death until he returns. That's what he wants. And so is it giving him what he wants for us to do it every three months? No, but boy, it sure makes it nicer and easier. And we don't have to think about sickness and weakness and death. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. In the early church, it's probably almost certain that they did it every day. Certainly every week, on Sunday, the first day of the week, when they, when they gathered. And so the issue is not schedule. We should want to do this all the time because how much do we love Jesus? How much do we feel solidarity with his death, his blood? What, what is it worth to us? His body, how precious is it to us? It's our only hope in life and death. And so, no, the solution to this is not by us postponing and delaying and talking about people's schedules and, well, we can't do it this week. And No, 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 no. And it's also not keeping the portions small, is it? You know what the problem with the legalist is? The legalist has no love. And so he's always trying to circumscribe his duties. And he never will look at the heart of the law. If we love Jesus, we will proclaim his death until he comes. And we know that this sacrament is given to us to proclaim his death. It's not the only way. We're also supposed to present our bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to him. But it is a way. It is a sacrament. He says he will meet us here. We do receive grace when by faith with the Spirit we receive this meal. And so what? The fact that that promise is so special that some of us will be weak, others sick, and others dead if we don't take it worthily will cause us to turn our back on the meal? No, no, no. We must examine ourselves. 
And that's the thing we don't want to do. We don't want to examine ourselves. You remember how I said at the beginning that we sang all these songs and had scripture about the wrath of God in, in the service before the sermon? Remember that? One of the beautiful things about being a father or a mother is that God normally gives you children and you are able to demonstrate the wrath of God to your children. In other words, you can testify to the character of God with your children. And it's such a wonderful thing because so many children are going to stand before the judgment seat of God and not even the clap of thunder and the lightning will have warned them of who God is. And of course, they didn't have a father because their father was trying to be their friend. And so he never bothered telling them about the wrath of God. And so what a wonderful gift it is to have children and you can show them the wrath of God against ungodliness, right? And come on, you're sitting there going, well, I'm not so much. You want to know why fathers don't spank their children? I've looked deep in my heart, and I can tell you why. It's because I know that when I spank my son or my daughter, that it is a direct pipeline to God with me saying through the pipeline, I am under your authority and you have authority to spank me. And I don't want it. I would much rather lie about God and hope that God will lie about himself. And so the wrath of God is eviscerated from the church today. It is gone. The fear of God is eviscerated. The the wrath of God and the fear of God is eviscerated from your home. It's gone. And then you come to this warning of God where God says, God, that is why some of you are weak, others sick, and others dead. Because you have eaten and drunk the body and blood of the Lord unworthily. And we just, you know, it's like, we think, I wonder if Disney has put that into into Disney World. You know, they got the small world. Maybe they have an exhibit for the Lord's table where you can, like, see people getting weak and sick and dying. Well, how about, you know, maybe HBO has done a special on it. Well, how about those conferences they have together for the gospel? Listen, if it's true in the Corinthian church, it's true today. If it was many then, there are many today. And I tell you, there is not another period in church history where they have not said, based on this text, this is the reason 
that we have many dying today. And that is the truth you will never hear any of the big boys of the reform world ever say. You will not hear it. And you know, you say to me, well, there you go again, saying that this church is the best church. And I say, this church is a midget. This church is pathetic. I am pathetic. As long as you look at something other than all the filth that surrounds us today in the church, as long as you'll look 10 years ago or 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 500, and that's why I tell you, don't read anything that's published today. Because you'll never hear anybody saying that AIDS is God's judgment. Hey, hey, any of you heard it? Billy Graham told us AIDS is not God's judgment. That's the church in America today. So if AIDS isn't God's judgment, then how on earth would anybody ever believe that because they come to this table without discerning the body and blood of the Lord, that they may be weak, they may get sick, and they may die? Many. Right? Now, after the service this morning, our uh, meekest elder, the meekest elder, and now, Jeff, that's not you. I I hate to tell you that. (laughs) It's a joke. Um, He came up to me and he told me about a man that used to be in this church. And he reminded me of that man trampling the grace of Jesus Christ. And you say, well, that's pretty judgmental of you. And I say, you know, judgment's of the essence of being a pastor and an elder. That's what you pay me to do, is make judgments. When you come in and ask me to listen to your story and then give you my thoughts, I'm making judgments. Sorry, get over it. But this was the meekest elder reminding me something I had forgotten, which is this guy came in. I remember one time in a, in a communion service, he was wailing, audibly wailing. And this man was rebuked and admonished and encouraged and rebuked and admonished and encouraged by the elders over and over and over again, over years And he was a proud man, and he would not listen to the elders. He knew better than they knew. He's one of these guys that just, he was brilliant. And you know what happened? You know, right? He ended up divorcing his wife against the exhortations and warnings of the elders. And guess what happened to him? He died out of nowhere as a young man. He died. And, and, and you would look at me and you would say, well, yeah, but I mean, you don't know why he died. I mean, we all know that there's not a connection between death and sickness. And, and you know, we all understand now that lightning is electricity. It's not the hand of God. I mean, you know, prehistoric, stupid people, you know, they thought that lightning was the hand of God, but we know it's not. It's just electricity in the clouds, and actually it goes from the bottom up. I say, no, God did it. God did it. Modern man thinks that when he gives a scientific explanation, he's removed the agency of God. No, 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 no. 
You can't say that God's the one that caused the Good Samaritans to stop and help you get gas when you run out and then deny that lightning striking a man is just willy-nilly haphazard fate. I've noticed that people are always assigning agency to God when good things happen. Never bad. It's just so funny. You know? And as I go back through my work as a pastor, I can tell you again and again and again of horrible consequences of those who have not discerned the body and blood of Christ at the Lord's table. I can just, you know. And I tell you, as a pastor, I don't want to think about it. And every time people defy the board of elders, and that's what scares me. It doesn't scare me if I see that your heart is hard while I'm preaching to you. And yeah, I do see it. That doesn't scare me. What scares me is when a man doesn't judge himself, and then the elders come to him and warn him. And then he defies them, and I just go, oh, man. It is so scary, because the Bible says, what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then we see here, some of you weak, others sick, others dead. And... I remember 30 years ago entering the ministry. It wasn't Ted Koppel and it wasn't Dan Rather, but it was one of those guys that his face is known to everyone, so he thinks that he should tell them his thoughts too. He doesn't realize it's just his face we like. And he released a statement to the country saying that his God is not angry. And then he said, my God is bigger than that. What do you think that he will think when he stands before the judgment seat of God? When the mountains will not fall on him despite his pleas. Do you think his understanding of God will change? Or do you think he's just lying right now to postpone the inevitable? Do you really think you can live in this universe and not know the wrath of God against ungodliness? I don't think you can. I just don't think you can. I think all nature round us rings of his anger and wrath against ungodliness and of his mercy and love towards righteousness, towards the meek and the humble. Listen, I've told this story a number of times. Let me tell it again. You know, I used to hitchhike all over the country, right? Everywhere. Even took my wife, six months pregnant, hitchhiked from Atlantic City to Madison, Wisconsin. And boy, did we got rides just like that. And then I got my head beat by the truckers that picked us up for having her out there, which I deserve fully. And so when I would hitchhike alone, because I was a young man, people would not stop often. Spent over 24 hours in a little town in South Carolina one time. And when I wasn't getting rides, I would be standing beside the road, and 
I would notice that I had an attitude in the way I was standing. Now, you think that if you're standing like this, how do you have an attitude when you're standing? You know, it's like, at what point does it become an attitude? <laughs> well, I'll tell you, this is getting close. This is an attitude. Do you see the difference? One's supplicant, the other's demand. You with me? Now, there are many other ways that I oozed attitude when I would hitchhike and I hadn't gotten picked up for a long time. You know, do you see that? You know, or, you know, or, and sometimes I do that. You know, I thought, okay, all these people are scared of me. And by some internal logic, it was like, why don't I just go ahead and show them they're right, you know? <laughs> you know? But that only entertains you for a short time, right? And then you still don't have a ride. And what would happen is, is I went through these various postures. What I would do is I would observe my heart. And what I would see is, that as I didn't get a ride, what was actually going on was that I refused to be meek and humble. And that I thought that I deserved a ride from them. And let me tell you something, if you don't know this, you'll never get a ride as a hitchhiker if you think you deserve a ride. You'll never get one. And then I would consciously think to myself, Tim, you are asking people for something that you have no right to ask them for, humble yourself and ask. And I can't tell you how many times that I would realize that I was a, you know, I was, what's the word, a scrum, or a, you know, I was, I was, I was scum. And then once I realized I was scum by the sky to the road, you know, then I would be humble. Now, you see that? You see that head? It's so clear to God what you are. It's so clear to him. And the Bible tells us God resists the proud. But he gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will lift you up. And so, look, the Lord's Supper is not, um, it's not killjoy, it's not negative. It's just that God the Father is unbelievably intense in defending the honor of his only beloved Son. And if you're going to come to this table proclaiming the Lord's death, and the way you think of the other people here, the way that you have been impure the previous week, the way that you have a cocky attitude, you're sashaying up there, right? They will not tolerate it because this is the body and the blood of his son. This last week, actually, I guess it was a little over a week ago, all those young couples from our church that were invited, I don't know how they but they were all up in Michigan. 
And so there was a bunch of families there. And uh, my son, Taylor, had uh, just given notice at a certain job where he worked. And um, one of the guys that works with that company was sitting there. My son, Taylor, wasn't there. My son, Joseph, was there. And that man, who is a man that ordinarily I have the deepest affection for, I, I expect nothing but kindness and affection from him. But that man made a comment to the effect that, well, you know, the business, you know, it'll be a bit of a speed bump for a couple weeks, but then we'll, we'll be fine. He was talking about my son. Oh, <laughs> up with which I will put up much, but not that. And so that poor man and everybody in that room saw me lose it. I said, oh, you'll be fine without him, huh? Not my son you won't be. My son, Taylor. Don't you tell me that. My son Taylor is a good worker and you will not be fine without my son. Now, listen, the point of it is not for you all to find out Taylor's a good worker. Actually, he's... In some ways, he's a good worker. In some ways, he's not. But at the end of the conversation... Uh, ben Crum helped me to see that I was making a you-know-what of myself in front of everybody. All the women were gone. All the children were in bed. I mean, nobody wanted to be there, you know, and it took me about an hour. I mean, I was mad. <laughs> Are you with me, Rachel? You know, thank Glenn. And so at the end of the time, I said to this man, I said, well, Dave, I said, you should take comfort in one thing. I said, I can probably, I asked Joseph, you can probably count on less than 100 the number of times I've ever defended my sons in public. <laughs> and Joseph said, and everybody that's there will agree with this, Joseph said, uh, never. <laughs> that was the oldest one. Then the next day I sent out an email because I realized that I'd beat up on a son who loved me. And who loved Taylor. And I realized that he just was grieving and angry about Taylor leaving. He was not saying Taylor wasn't a good worker. And so it was like that time I beat up on Andrew Henry for offering to move my car. It's like, what am I? I'm, I'm a monster, right? This is David Abusara. How could I treat David like that? Now, what's the point? Listen, forget me. I'm just a father in flesh. But you deal with God about his son. No, you won't. No, you won't. You will not dishonor this table. You will not do it. And so you better judge yourself. Because if you don't judge yourself, then he will. And that's the reason that some of you are weak, are sick, and some have slept. And then here's the final hopeful thing. Verse 31, 
But if we are judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, now he's just talked about the judgment, weak, sick, death. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. Now, what's the hopeful thing about that? Well, the hopeful thing is, in Corinth, he's talking to Christians, right? And some of them were weak, some sick, and others died. And he right here says, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. And so that means that the ones that were sick and the ones that were weak and the ones that died were the recipients of their heavenly Father's discipline, and they will be in heaven. In heaven! If you can get your mind around the fact that the discipline of a father is a precious thing, Scripture just explodes in meaning and kindness and love and grace. But you have to be humble and meek to accept the discipline of a father. And this is the reason why I tell you about the discipline of your children. You get done spanking a child and that child's neck is stiff, you double the intensity and the number of hits immediately. And you say, oh yeah, child abuse. And I say, well... Everything I say can be twisted, you know. I'm not talking about child abuse. You say, oh, yeah, you said the dad should be wrathful. I say, yeah, 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 you know. To the one that doesn't want to understand, go your way. But to the one that has ears to hear, God says that sickness, weakness, and death are his kindness that brings us to heaven. And I think that's beautiful, right? So now, finally, this next week, we're going to have communion here next Sunday. Examine yourself. Examine yourself. And you say, well, if I examine myself, I don't know whether I should come or not. And I say, that's the purpose of elders. The whole purpose of elders is to help you with your conscience. And so if you have an issue that you don't know how to approach the Lord's table with, go to them. They're just waiting. And you can even pick the one that you like most. Okay, so if the elders would please stand up. This is Dan, and I'm telling you, he is just as cheerful and hopeful and kind as they come. This is Lawrence, and he is very merciful. And Lawrence, the best time to come to him is Friday. <laughs> and if you need a dentist, he's the best I've ever heard of in my life. And also, Lawrence tends to be able to understand polymorphous diver per perversity. In other words, if you're really perverse... Lawrence will be sympathetic. And Adam, the good thing about Adam is he's a physician, so this is just old hat to him. You go to him, give him your story, and a couple seconds later, the truth will be done. And, and you know, if, if you want something just very short and brief and direct, 
he, he will, is that, yeah. And Brian, well, Brian will make you feel like you have come, he is the one that has come to you, you know? He, he will make it clear it's such a privilege for him to minister to you. You know, that by the end, you'll think, well, I'm glad that I deign to give him some of my time. <laughs> Is that accurate? Yeah. And Jeff, you're still an elder. You're not active, but stand up. And Jeff is the guy for men that are just plain men. You know, they just have normal male sins. Jeff's a good one to go to for that. And uh, Jeff has a good sense of humor. And if you ask him to feed you, you'll eat well. Okay, are there any other elders here? Yeah, Jeff, you are, oh, he'll give you a hug. And Jeff's wife will love you and he'll love you. And Jeff will be the gift of faith you need. If you lack faith, that's what Jeff will give you. And then David Carell. I would say leave David alone this next week. David just carries so much of our sin that I'd say spread it out a little bit this next week. We just all want to encourage David right now. By the way, a word to the wise is sufficient. If there's any way you can encourage Dave right now, do it. All right, where's Stephen? Oh, he's gone. I, I don't know. What would you say about Stephen, John Crumb? Very wise. And you might get to look at his wife if you meet him at his house and see how a really godly woman acts. Yeah, yeah, and he has a new house. Yeah, that, that's true, that's true, yeah. And Isaiah, he might, Isaiah might be willing to tell you one of his money-making schemes. Mary Lee, would you stand up, please? Laura, would you stand up, please? Janet, would you stand up, please? Eleanor, would you stand up, please? Eleanor, stand up, please. Where is Annie? Cindy? Annie, Cindy. And who am I missing? Nicole, stand up. Who else? Amanda. Now, these are the older women, and they function with the women. Now, it doesn't mean as a woman you can't come to the elders. You can, always. But if you feel more comfortable going to a woman, these are our older women of our church, okay? They're not all of them, but they're some of them. And they're wonderful. I always tell people the strength of this church is the women. It's not the men. Men rarely rise above the level of their wives, right? Okay, so you see who the women are. Again, it's Cindy Sparks, it's Amanda Menzel, it's Eleanor Rice. No, I know. I knew. And by the way, we also have Jake stand up and Amanda stand up. Come on, stand up. And then we have Phil raise your hand. And where's Don Spady? Oh, we don't want anybody to go to you. <laughs> Dawn is wonderful. She is as direct as her husband. So if all you want is to get the pain over quickly, go to Dawn or Adam and they'll nail you. But they'll love you. All right, where else? Where's Jody? Where's Jenna? They'll be wonderful too. So you guys, you don't have any reason not to examine yourself. 
Don't submit to your bondage. Be, be freed by those who will pronounce the forgiveness of God to you. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loose. And this is a power of the keys that are, is given to officers, okay, and their wives. Well, I'd need another hour for that, so I won't go into how that works, but... Ask them if you can talk to their husband as you get done. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are a godly father, that you are the very definition of fatherhood. We thank you that all fatherhood from heaven and earth gets its name from you. And Father, we pray that we will examine ourselves this week so that we do not need to be judged. We thank you for your discipline, Father. We love you. We love your son. Help us to honor him in Jesus' name.